Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. All right, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins. Today, joining us is Mr. Kevin Bedley, a 30-year veteran in the fields of medical device quality and regulatory. Since 2017, Kevin has served as the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Quality for a company called Zoll Respicardia, which is a leader in innovative technologies that address the unmet needs of people with central sleep apnea. Kevin and his team are responsible for driving regulatory strategy for successful commercialization and maintaining commercialized status across a portfolio of novel Class 2 and Class 3 products. Prior to this, Kevin served in a variety of RAQA leadership roles for companies like Angiotech, Angel Medical Systems, LSI Solutions, and others. Simultaneously over the years, Kevin has maintained a vibrant consulting practice called Acumen Regulatory and Quality Consultants, where he and his team assist medtech startups with creating and executing regulatory strategies for novel devices, which includes meeting with the FDA, Health Canada, and notified bodies to determine the least burdensome path to device approval. Kevin, without further ado, man, thanks so much for being here. It's great yeah, to see you. Thank you for having me on, Mitch. Appreciate it. Great introduction, too, as well. Thank you. This is uh, this has been uh, a while in the making. I'm glad you're here. And, you know, yes. as, so this episode is part of a bigger picture. We're kind of doing like a mini series with uh, a variety of leaders from the industry, almost like a how I built this, right? You're a regulatory and quality executive, as I mentioned in the introduction, and there's ways and reasons why you got to where you are today. And I'm excited to kind of dig in and, and really understand the backstory, both personally and professionally. To be able to do that, we got to go back in time. And so I want you to tell us, if you would, about your early years. Where'd you grow up? What was your family like, et cetera? Sure. I grew up in the southern tier of Western New York State uh, near Corning. I think most people are familiar with Corning. If you have, if you own an iPhone, uh, your glass is made by Corning. And I worked in a laboratory for Corning Incorporated for several years. I started my career as a chemist. Out of my childhood there, we had, I have a brother, older, uh, younger sister. And I want to give a shout out to my great grandmother who lived in the home with us on my dad's side, and she was, I think, integral in uh, helping me become who I am today. She just, I feel for kids these days, right? They go to daycare centers. Um, uh, they don't get a biggest, a big piece of their family as they grow up. Uh, they're raised by, you know, some daycare center or the school. But uh, we had our great-grandmother in our house as we were growing up, and she taught me tons of different things, uh, mostly how to get along, right? So so uh, she was uh, pretty strict in that respect. But um, yeah, she basically taught us that if you want it, you can get it, but you have to work for it. It's not going to be easy. So that's awesome. I think, I yeah, think that's, that's a good start. So I didn't have a great grandma. Actually, I did for a period of time. My great grandma lived with us, believe it or not. But my grandparents lived kitty corner from us growing up. And so we would run back and forth, you know, through through the neighbor's yard to get to my grandparents, which was awesome. So I appreciate uh, I appreciate where you're coming from because I certainly yeah, have my own fond memories. And family. My mom's the oldest of 11 kids and they all had two or three kids. So, you know, just whatever we have a family about, it's, it's a pretty good size affair. So, um, and, and family's important. And I think that 
being able to grow up with a bunch of family around with, you know, every Sunday was at the farm. My mom grew up on a large uh, dairy farm, you know, to have that family exposure um, just helped to develop us, I think, better as people, as individuals. And the extended family that I don't think happens as much these days as it used to, um, the grandparents would live in the house with you, right? So um, I feel fortunate to have been brought up that way. So that's awesome. Yeah. Big family is an understatement there, Kevin. That's a huge family, man. That's a huge family. What, uh, what held your inter interest outside of class? Were you into sports, music, theater? What were you into? Yeah. In uh, high school, I played sports. Uh, I loved baseball. It was really my favorite. We didn't have football in my town because actually a, small, a school was rather small and there was a, an accident uh, when we did have football prior to be getting into the high school. And so we had soccer. So that, that became one of my favorites was soccer. I taught soccer in the town that I live in now as my kids were growing up. But baseball is what um, I went the furthest in. I, I, I'm a lefty. I was a pitcher. I had some great junk. I had a wicked sidearm that I would throw to left-handed batters um, and wound up playing and getting drafted to the mock. Elmira Pioneers team, which is a farm team. And, uh, but I moved on to, to other things. Baseball was fun. I was never, I never took any sports too seriously. To me, it was entertainment. It was fun. It was, um, good to be with, with friends and, and play ball together, but I was never like, you know, crying when we lost or, you know, getting too excited when we won. It was just a game. It was fun. But I, I will say this, it's one of my interview questions now when I, when I interview employees, and that is, have you played team sports before? Because I think there's a lot of lessons, a ton of lessons that we learn playing team sports that maybe not even really aware of as we're learning that, right? Uh, you can't do it all yourself. You need a good team. And that's really been one of the, I think the most important achievements that I've made is, is really surrounding myself with a good team. That's what's been most helpful to advancing my career is taking care of the people that are taking care of my department. You know, and that's why I love these types of shows, man. I did, had no idea. I never probably would have known that you were drafted uh, by a farm team uh, in baseball. Yeah, that's that's baseball. really awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I love what you're saying as far as, you know, understanding somebody's background, as far as where else outside of the professional world have they had some team exposure and gotten used to maybe some of the fundamentals and the importance of what it's like to work with a team. Yeah. Early on, you mentioned you, you're a chemist by trade. That's kind of where yes. you started out. When you went to college, did you know, kind of, did you already have an interest? How'd you end up deciding what to major in it? And what did you major in, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. So, so my degree is in uh, chemistry. I started in uh, education. I wanted to be a college professor. Um, so I went to school at Cortland College for a couple of years to be a professor. I was assigned a couple of different teachers in a local school nearby at a high school. And that experience was rather negative for me. So yeah. I decided I probably didn't want to be a teacher, but I still wanted to do um, something that had to do with science. I liked the new stuff. I liked technology. I like I like advancements. I understood that chemistry and, and other sciences was how we could get there. Um, chemistry appealed to me the most. And that was probably because of my teachers. I had really great chemistry teachers starting in the seventh grade and just wound up all the way up through college, having great teachers in, in organic chemistry and some of the other chemistries I took there and wound up starting my career as a, as a chemist and, and practiced yeah. for about I guess about 10 or 10 or 12 years in chemistry, mostly in research uh, laboratories um, doing spec spectroscopy. So looking at doing elemental analysis on, on glasses when I worked for Corning, um, starting there. And then in a specialty chemicals company where I got some free reign to just do whatever experimentation um, I wanted to do. So really, really enjoyed that. And a long time ago, I switched careers and I'll tell you how long ago, I looked in a newspaper 
in the classified ads to find my first job in a medical device company. I don't think that happens anymore, right? It's all online or, or yeah. whatever. So that just to say how long ago that was, that was like in 92 or 93, maybe somewhere back there. But I, I took a job with a, a local company as a quality manager because all the way through, you know, growing up my career at Corning and then uh, my career at Kodak after that, and then a chemistry job, I had a special chemical, a small a specialty chemicals company, um, not too far from my home here south of Rochester. But uh, as I worked that last job close to home, I found a quality position. And I'm like, you know, I've been doing quality right along with chemistry. And chemistry, you kind of get pigeonholed into a laboratory or whatever. And I'm like, I think I'll give that a shot. So I went to this other company and did an interview with them, uh, several of them. <laughs> and uh, I wound up getting the job there in quality. And, and I switched right into um, regulatory, you know, paired them together. In med device companies, quality and regulatory really belong in the same department for the most part. And it, it, unless it's really a huge company, it just makes more sense because you have regulatory strategy, you have regulatory compliance, you have regulatory submissions, and all the quality documentation um, that you're creating actually coincides with that. So it's, it's, good to, it's good to really have those two departments together. You know, you took the words out of my mouth a little bit because the running joke in the industry is people don't wake up. The running joke, I should say, is I woke up one day, decided I'm going to be in regulatory affairs, right? But it doesn't necessarily happen that way. You, you yes. hear people's backstories, somehow they, they fell into it. And so it sounds like for you, hey, you had a really solid foundation in chemistry. There was an opportunity to join a quality or a program. Yes. Uh, you started to get that experience. Where was the transition where you started to incorporate some of the regulatory aspect? Yeah, yeah. So this that really happened very quickly. It was a very it was a small company, a local company, and uh, they made several different devices that were coding related. So they're taking medical devices um, that had been engineered as far as they could, and then we added coatings to those devices to improve their performance. For instance, amniocentesis, those types of things. We put a coating on a needle that would make it kind of light up under ultrasound, so that you were sure when you were putting that that needle in there that you're not going to hit the baby or whatever. Um, also to get into that epidural space in your spine, um, those needles proved to be um, um, very good there. So it was my ability to apply my chemistry understanding to quality and regulatory in this first job that, that I think really helped me to succeed. And because we were a small company, we're trying to get these amniocentesis needles on the uh, market. Uh, we hadn't didn't have a 510K yet, which was funny. I went the first two days that I worked at the company, I was actually in DC taking a class on how to write a 510K. So <laughs> so it's it happened very quickly before I even took the job there. I think I started on a Wednesday or Thursday, but the days before that I spent in class taking a 510K. So um, I came back and we wrote the 510K, we got approval and, and I'm like, hey, you know, we have a regulatory person in a sister company who's like offsite. Uh, that person's specialty is really in um, ETO sterilization. Why don't you let me become your regulatory person as well? And I'll, I'll start a quality and regulatory, regulatory apartment because we have like several other uh, devices in the pipeline. Okay. Yeah, like coated stents. We had some paclitaxel coated stents that were very effective and, and actually wound up becoming the uh, technology that our company sold on. So, Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's when we were purchased by Angiotech. So that's how okay. I uh, incorporated it. So that's a 
So that's a great way to segue. I mentioned Angio, Angiotech um, as yeah. one of the organizations that you were a leader at in the past. You know, if looking over the course of your career, what are some pivotal roles or responsibilities that you've held that you feel helped you get to the executive spot that you're at today? I would say this first role that I had, um, they put me on the leadership team right away. So, so as soon as I would say I was there for about a year and uh, they said, hey, we'd like you to join our, our leadership team and was promoted to the leadership team. But I was still, I think at the manager or senior manager level. So I really wasn't at the executive level, but they wanted me to be on the team because there was no other representation in quality or regulatory. So I got a nice break there, but I also got, and, and I think this is a question you're going to ask me later, but I had an amazing boss. She was, she was probably definitely the best manager I've had in my career. And I've really gotten stuck with some real poor managers over the course of my career, but having had gotten a great one at the beginning, I really was very fortunate to have, uh, and I'm going to give her a shout out. Her name is Margie Leiden, and she is one of the best bosses I've ever had. Um, just really taught me the best ways to deal with situations. Her um, uh, axiom was that there's things that are going to go wrong, and it's how you deal with them that make you the employee we want, right? So um, she really worked a lot with um, helping me to help others and helping me to help our products get on the market um, more quickly just by paying attention to some of the smaller details that um, necessitate actually getting your device on the market quickly. We were able to get 5-2K approval for some of our early products very quickly. And so that just propelled me along the path of getting on toward an executive uh, leadership. Again, it's not, it really depends on the company you're in. It depends on the personnel that are above you to get to the vice president level. I think I made executive director pretty quickly, but it took a long time to get to VP just because there was already someone ahead of me at that company who was in line for VP. So it takes you a while you know, to get there. But it also depends upon the company itself. Had not, had there not been a, a person ahead of me in, in a company three, you know, companies back um, when I was at AngelMed, I would have gotten that position. Had there not been a little uh, uh, family favor favoritism in that small private company, you know, again, I, I probably would have been VP at that point. But let me ask you this, Kevin. <clears throat> Because a lot of people who are going to be listen to the show be like, look, I aspire to be a vice president one day. I want to be the top regulatory, the top quality person. Aside from kind of being in the right place at the right time and maybe, you know, a manager afforded you an opportunity that maybe somebody else wasn't afforded at the time, yep. right? Yep. Can you point to certain experiences like or milestones where you felt like, look, I feel like I have the experience and the confidence necessary to be, you know, the top executive over the yeah, functional area? Yeah. So I have a, a um, you know, there's some luck involved, of course, but you have to be prepared when luck comes around, right? So you have to be prepared for that. And I think the best thing you can do toward improving your career or advancing your career is to demonstrate that you understand the body of knowledge that uh, you need to understand to practice regulatory affairs. Um, there's several ways to do that. Now, when I started my career in the early 90s, I think there were two schools that offered regulatory affairs. I think there was San Diego State University and Northeastern in Boston, and that's where I attended Northeastern. So that was my way to demonstrate that I was, you know, that I could understand the body of knowledge. I could get good grades in these classes and, you know, learn more and more about reg affairs. And there's also the Regulatory Affairs Professional Society who offers some tests that you can take to prove that you understand the body of knowledge is required to practice in quality regulatory affairs for a med device company. So I think there's one thing to be said for the technical acumen, right? You obviously got to know the rules of the road, so to speak, from a regula regulation standpoint, but there's so much more to it when you're, especially when you're leading a group, right? And you, and you're the one who is basically on the chomping block when things go wrong. 
And, That's and you also want to raise up your team when things go right. So you kind of take the heat, but at the same time, give the credit, right? Yes. What about specific pivotal moments or types of examples of projects that you took on that you feel like really helped kind of change the trajectory of your career towards an executive role? Anything come to mind? Yeah, yeah. So very early on in, in my quality career, we were using a quality system of a sister company. And the quality system was very convoluted. It had hundreds of SOPs, thousands of forms, um, and you know, hundreds of work instructions. It just was not manageable. When the system gets too large to use, people won't use it. If it's cumbersome or, or difficult to use, people won't use it. So I learned that very early in my career, presented with that problem. I said, well, let's, I took it to our president of the company and said, look, we really need our own quality system. We are not doing ETO sterilization. Half of that quality system doesn't make sense for us. You know, we're building medical devices and we need different SOPs. And we're also looking at expanding into the European Union. Um, I think there was only about 20 countries in the European Union then. Uh, now we're in the 30s. But I convinced him that we should have our own quality system. And then I took that on myself of developing the quality system. And I had done it once before. I was actually practicing in uh, medical devices. I did it in a specialty chemicals company where we were trying to get certified. So um, I engaged a European Union, a notified body for us, and wrote the quality system and started to collect the documentation that shows how we're using it and all of that. And within six months, we were able to get our certification to 1345, which at the time was still a supplemental standard to 9001. So that's a, a while back, right? So. Yeah, that's awesome. And so basically, in essence, you put yourself out there, you took a risk to not only demonstrate yeah. to the leadership why this was necessary, but because of doing that, you were able to execute it and paid off. Yeah. And you know, that same principle paid off in almost every successive day job company that I've had since then. And also in some of my consulting companies that I've, I've worked with in the past as well, I discovered, I created my own kind of electronic system for managing documentation because this was, you know, pre-master control and documentum and all those other um, types of uh, softwares out there. But I found one called Grand Avenue um, Systems and it is my favorite by far. And it's easy to use. It works for small companies, works for large companies. It handles training and design control and everything that an auditor will need to see when they come visit your company. So every quality piece of documentation can be put in Grand Avenue and it just makes your audits go more smoothly. It's easier to find the documentation. It's easier to show you're following SOPs. You can um, record all the training to those SOPs because they're led together. You can use those same SOPs and forms and templates in the design control module so that you can at any one time go in and look and see what documentation still needs to be created in that phase to move to the next phase or see what you know phase that it's in so that you know you know how much further this project has to go. And anyone who has access to Grand Avenue, if you hit Grand Avenue in the company, will will be able to instantly tell where you're at, um, the documentation you need to get to the next phase. So it's it's a software that's worked really well. So I took my initial folder system that I used before all these things came about and started um, putting Grand Avenue in place. So um, learned to configure it and all that. And so now I've, I've put it in, oh, a half dozen different companies and I put it as all respiratory too. It's one of the first things I did when I joined them, which really worked out well. And again, just lucky on my part, when COVID came along, like before um, I arrived, they were using paper copies and they were dropping them on everyone's desk for signature. And then you walk into the next guy who hasn't signed it yet. And I put in this electronic system, that allows electronic signatures. I can set up who needs to sign what document by type. So put in all the document types. And, and uh, anyway, once COVID came about and everyone was working outside the office, had we still been on paper, we that would have really killed us. So 100%. So, 
Yeah, I just got lucky, you know, just did it because I liked it and knew that it worked well. And, you know, I became, uh, hey, that guy knows what he's doing, right? Because he put this system in place and and uh, and now we're we're all using it and it's and it's working great. So I got to make it clear, we are, the show's not sponsored by Grand Avenue by any means, but it's ironic because I know those guys very well and it is a heck of a product. And uh, here's a free uh, plug for, for Grand Avenue, huh? Because it's yeah. awesome well, to hear call, from well, the well, streets. I call them at Grand Avenue or send them an email. They know who I am, right? So they... They, uh, they usually answer pretty well, Jim or Ann, so on. You know. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, here's a, a free plug from, from the streets of somebody who's using Grand Avenue yeah. software. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I've evaluated against many other systems, and it is the easiest to put in place, the easiest to get up and running, and the easiest to maintain. Very cool. All right, here's a burning question for you, man. You've, you've managed a variety of people over the course of your career. How do you spot uh, top-performing regulatory professionals compared to average uh, professionals? I really... I really hire more by, I don't want to say the wrong thing here, right? So, so um, let, me, let me rephrase. Let me rephrase. So not necessarily spotting them when you hire them. After yeah. somebody's been working with you, what separates top performance in regulatory affairs compared to average performance once they're on the job? When an employee comes to you with a problem, if they continue after they tell you the whole problem with what the solution might be, then that's a keeper. Right. Yeah. And if the employee is always coming to you with problems, but not any solutions, then they're not really doing their job. So that, that's just one example. Um, also, when I say on a call or we're in a meeting that, you know, hey, we really need to get this done. The employee that speaks up right away and says, yes, I can do that. You know, that's a hypo, right? That's that's a high yeah. performer. And we want to promote and lock them in. And I've, I've done so with employees that I'll say in the past, but had a really good person. She was a hypo. We brought her in as a quality administrator, but realized right away she was very sharp. And so we promoted her up through quality. I started introducing her to regulatory and uh, she actually got a job as a vice president of regulatory affairs about uh, six months before I did. <laughs> so uh, wow. again, she was just in the right place at the right time. And, and I really sold her to, there was a company I was consulting for. And I said, hey, I know just the person you need. Um, because, you know, I have a day job, as, as you mentioned earlier in the show, and I, I consult, but I, I try to do more strategic consulting. You know, here's what you need to do. Here's someone I can help you with that can do that for you. Or That's awesome. maybe you have someone inside who can do that. But I try to just do the do the um, um, strategic part and not and not get into writing five ten Ks and all that anymore. I've just written enough of those that I don't care to write anymore. <laughs> so I want to get into your consulting piece in a minute, but it's just to kind of recap what you're saying here, it's in your experience, is those who are a they proactive, they step up and take on responsibility. Yes. B, if they if they raise a problem, they better be coming with a solution uh, as well, a possible solution. Yeah. And absolutely. then three, basically more so those who continue instead of oh, you know, it's almost like the uh, they feel like it's always a heavy lift versus like hey, no, we can do this. Here's how I think we can possibly do it. What do you think? And constantly seeking that advice, but proactively. Yes, absolutely. But being proactive about seeking that advice. And the real key to creating successful quality and regulatory teams is being able to spot that during the hiring process, right? Being able to spot the kind of person and there's certain types of questions you can ask, there's certain things you can delve into that can help you 
shine a light on whether or not this person is someone that will take initiative on their own. There's all sorts of indicators that you can use for that. And I've made a study of it and I've been very fortunate to hire good employees. And honestly, I don't know what it is about me, but employees that I've worked with in the past, all the way through my career, even back to being a chemist, still reach out to me, still are linked to me on LinkedIn. I still put them in jobs in places. I just uh, put another gal. I hired her as a regulatory administrator seven years ago. And she is now, I think, I, I can't remember if, her, if she's, yeah, I think she's director level, but you know, she's, she's making great money. She just got, um, I put her in a, a company that I've been consulting for. I also serve on their board of directors and great company. They just needed a little more quality regulatory and more than I could give them. You know, it would have been another full-time job for me. So I, and instead I joined their board of directors. I consult for them and I give advice to this, this uh, person who's, who's, been employed with me in the past. So yeah, again, spotting good employees upfront is one of the most critical skill sets that you can have. It's not infallible, my system, but but uh, interviewing is extremely important to try to, you know, there's no way you're going to get to know anyone in an hour and a half or so. But if you ask the right questions, you can get to know enough to uh, roll the dice on that candidate. You're teasing the audience here. It sounds like you've had a lot of success with this quote-unquote system piece. Any any advice or any particular questions that you feel are tried and true that, that you would advise others incorporate early and often? Yeah, look at the team player. I think I mentioned that one earlier. Folks who have been exposed to teams, be that sports teams or other teams, uh, recognizing a team player up front is, is really helpful because that would be a person that could be open to, you know, sharing responsibility with their manager and making their manager's job easier and also delegating to their people that they manage jobs not under you know understanding team that you don't have to do it all yourself and try to be a hero that we all will function as a team so yeah and cross training your team during the time that you have your team together uh, cross training them has just been a, a great way to ensure that my department can cover whatever needs might crop up from the rest of the company at any time so that's certainly one of the benefits there other things i look for is in their personal life um what types of things do they do what kind of goals do they aspire toward in their in their private life because if the person is aspirational in their private life um they will be aspirational in their uh, work life and and i think it's one of those soft skill sets or soft skill sets that will, you know, positively impact the rest of your career. Yeah. So in essence, indicators, right? Indicators yeah. of what's going on in their ecosystem of life. What other indicators indicate, hey, this person could, you know, most likely uh, be a top performer because if you look at their history, they've done this, they've done this, they're driven by X, they've got experience as a team player outside of work. And you're using those kind of as outside of the technical acumen of what the job requires, basically using those as guides to what, who this person is as a whole. Yes, and, and how successful could they be in our department? I, I do hire on personality too. It, um, the resume gets you in the door, right? Your resume should demonstrate that you understand the body of knowledge, that you have been taking training classes on a regular basis, uh, which is important. I always make my folks take a minimum of three. So I know high post when they take four or five, right? <laughs> so, uh, but it, I think important to do a, a very thorough assessment up front. I want to shift gears with you for a minute here. Uh, we talked a couple of times in different pieces of, of this time together about the fact that not only do you run a full-time position as a regulatory and quality executive, but you also run this consulting business. Yes. And 
I want to call out that so many organizations are so against their employees moonlighting or running a consulting practice on the side. Yes. And they've got so many different concerns. You do this very successfully and you do it with the blessing of your organization. Can you share more about the philosophy behind this and, and kind of where it stands? Yeah. And many companies don't appreciate it. And they're worried about, I think, two things, your time. And so you have to ensure that you don't use your time during your normal workday um, for consulting. You just, you can't do that. You have to work with the companies that will, that do want to work with you after hours that where you can, you know, help them through some of the problems they might be having. I think the other thing that they're most concerned with is conflict of interest, right? So you do have to be careful about what companies you choose. The company I currently work for in my day job, we're doing central sleep apnea. We are the only company in the world treating central sleep apnea right now. So at least with a medical device um, successfully, I should say. We do have a little competition, but uh, um, it's a different it's a different type of therapy. So I use as a, I guess, a convincer for for my uh, parent company is, is that I... Um, don't take on jobs that would be any conflict of interest. I don't do any consulting during the daytime. And I, you know, when it can be avoided, there's, you know, there's times when you might spend an hour here or there, but you can give those back to the company in another way. And I think one of the most convincing um, arguments is that I would not be the regulatory person I am today had I not consulted for 30 other companies and during the time I, you know, the five companies I worked during the day job, you know, I have really broadened my experience. I am going to be a better employee for you because of that breadth and depth of knowledge that I've been able to accumulate by consulting on the side. And, you know, when people ask, you know, how do you find time to do this? I don't golf. I gave up golf a long time ago. I started golfing when I was like nine, loved it, was good at it. Golf left-handed for, you know, for the first 10 years of my life and then switched to right-handed and started golfing uh, right-handed after that. Um, but I don't play anymore. It's six hours to play around a golf. That's a lot of consulting time. That's a lot of consulting. Yeah, it's interesting perspective because this is the first time I've heard of a, a situation where hey, the organization knows what's going on. They're okay with it. You're proving that it can be successful without the conflict of interest. I think one of the other pushbacks might be is like, work is hard enough on a full-time job, let alone somebody doing double time for somebody else. This person's going to burn out and they're not going to be worth much to us because they're going to be burnt out. How do you not, how do you avoid that, Kevin? Yeah, you do have to be selective, right? So um, I have a, a pretty good sized network of folks who work, as I, I mentioned earlier, I keep in touch with people that I work with, you know, people that I've worked with in the past and in past companies and so on. And uh, they typically pick up uh, some of the work. So I'm very selective in what I'll take on. Again, um, sometimes I'll work with one of my other contacts. I'll start the consulting project myself. I will bring them in. I will introduce them to the people. I will introduce them to the problems and the proposed solution, and then have them actually execute on what needs to be done to solve the problems the company's trying to solve. Again, I keep my own time limited, and I think that's been helpful in, in being able to manage both a full-time day job and, and a consulting job. That makes sense. We didn't talk about that. It really started by accident. We didn't we didn't really talk about that. But I had a the president of the company that I was working in actually give me uh, the name of a gentleman who wanted to speak with me and get some regulatory um, strategy. And he worked at the time for the patent transfer office at the uh, University of Rochester here in Rochester, New York. And they were assessing all the patents written by, it's a research facility, written by the uh, researchers and looking for economic viability of those patents and any of them that came out as economically viable in the medical device space, I was automatically their regulatory guy, right? So it started that way, wow. just giving them regulatory strategy. 
And then I just kept building on that. And I have not once advertised my business. I guess this might be the first, but I, I, you know, this has all been word of mouth and I am busier than I could ever imagine and turn away a lot of work. Just again. That's amazing. Well, proof to say it goes to show when you do good things and you do good work, people recognize it and, you know, want to continue to help you as well. That's awesome, man. That, that's really good stuff. And I really enjoy the perspective that I haven't heard before, which is how do you do this successfully and above board, right? Because a lot of times people are like, oh, you know, I kind of do this on the side and it's a little dicey. I'll say in, in a past company and not to impugn anyone um, now, but in a past company, I had the president of the company come to me and say, hey, my buddy just reached out to me. He really needs to know, you know, if you can, if you can uh, just kind of get him over this one hurdle. And uh, now one of my colleagues works full time for that company. I help them get through the hurdle. Again, what I explained earlier, we, we I worked together then with my colleague and we got her a full time job there as uh, their prime quality and regulatory person. That's awesome. I'm going to wrap this up by asking one last question that uh, I always love to ask. Pretend that we're at your retirement party and yeah. uh, everybody's gathered around there to celebrate and, and honor you. What are you hoping that they would say? Uh, uh, Kevin was a nice guy, easy to work with, very approachable. That's what I work on the most because if people can't come to you with a problem, they won't come to you with a problem and your company will have problems. So you have to stay in touch. You have to be approachable and life is short. Be nice, right? Yep. Just be nice. Yep. 100%. 100%. Well, I can't thank you enough for being here. Um, I've got a, a ton of respect for you, as you know, and it's really awesome of you to be here and share your story. And for those who are looking to perhaps get in touch with you, if it's okay with you, we'll include a link to your LinkedIn profile as well as uh, a link to uh, the organization that you work for to check out all the great stuff that you guys are doing. Great. Thank you, Mets. Appreciate it. And a real joy to be on, on the uh on your show today. I don't, I've never been interviewed for my job. Who would have thought, right? In regulatory, no little kids drawing pictures of, of a regulatory guy at a desk, right? It's, it's the fireman, it's a policeman, right? We never, none of us ever aspire to this, but uh, here we are nonetheless. So, but thank you again for having me on your show. Mitch. Right on. Thanks, Kim. Yeah, take care. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.